Stay hungry, stay foolish. We can do more with our lives. We all know it. We all wish for it. But just how to do it, that eludes us. As one man describes his life, in the morning I can't wake up, in the day I am bored, in the evening I am tired, and at night I can't sleep. Even if we want to change, we're not sure the path to take. And if we do find our way, we are usually too emotionally wounded, physically unhealthy, or mentally stressed to take the steps we know would transform our desperate life into a meaningful one. Many of us long to change this troubled world, but the one thing we have the most influence over is the person looking back at us in the mirror. We live in fear of terrorism, but in actuality, the most devastating terrorism comes from within. A neglected body, chaotic mind, or wounded heart will prevent us from fulfilling our destiny as much as any outside enemy. We all know that we deserve and are meant to live an inspired life that rises above mere existence. Today's guest shares some ways we can live the life we have always known we can live, a life with meaning, a life full of love, a life worth breathing. We welcome author of A Life Worth Breathing, Max Strom. Max, welcome to the show. Hello, Aiden. It's wonderful to be here with you. Thank you. It's fantastic to have you on the show. We're going to talk about breathing today, but it goes much, much deeper than that. I'm sure a lot of people won't ever, ever think of this. And this is, this is what really jumped out at me, Max, was it's something we take for granted. We take air for granted, but we also take our act of breathing for granted. And it's so essential to our being. That's exactly right. And there's essentially two types of breathing. The way I categorize it, there's the breathing that we're all doing now, which is subconscious. And then there's conscious breathing, which most people don't do much unless they have a, a vocation or a hobby that requires it. So, for example, swimming or certain musical instruments that require breath. The average person doesn't control their breath much. So when we're talking about breathing in this context, we're, of course, not talking about subconscious automatic breathing but deciding to breathe in a certain way that affects our internal state. You mentioned in your TED talk that the U.S. Defense Department are using this for post-traumatic stress for some of the veterans in, in the U.S., which I found incredible. Yeah, they're beginning to. It's still new, but there is definitely a growing interest in breathing techniques because the usual way of dealing with post-traumatic stress syndrome is with pills and talk therapy. And overall, it's not getting the job done. And as you probably know, the suicide rate amongst combat veterans is extraordinarily high in the U.S. It's 22 per day. Wow. 22 suicides per day. It's the same thing now with uh, the medical community. I'm getting invited more and more to speak to doctors, groups of doctors, uh, conferences that are medical conferences by, you know, me, a non-doctor. Because they themselves, the doctors themselves, are desperate. A lot of them suffer from anxiety and depression and burnout and panic attacks. And they themselves are taking the medications they're prescribing and are unhappy with the results. And so they're desperate for something else. And uh, finally, they're looking at this odd thing called breathing patterns, breathing exercises. And, and uh, once I get them to do it, they're quite surprised and quite welcoming of continuing to do it. 
And I think this is the thing, and one of the reasons I reached out to you is the world is waking up to ourselves. I mean, what's inside? And we're, we have this yearning for meaning. There's, there's a lot of unhappiness. I mean, you share some of the stats, and, and the book was written a while back, but he said in America alone at the time, 40 million people exist on antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs, while over 80 million people use sleep-related drugs to help them sleep. And then on top of that, you have people drinking wine, you have some people smoking pot, all in the name of relaxing and getting to unwind. And you're kind of thinking, how the heck did we get here? Well, I hate to tell you that those statistics are quite dated now. It's much worse. I spoke with the head of a psychiatric department in a hospital recently, and she said that their estimated uh, statistics now on people with anxiety in the United States is 50%. About 32 or 34 officially. But like you said, there's another 15 or more percent of people who don't go to the doctor. They just drink alcohol or smoke pot or you know, we have this opioid epidemic, which is also a way that people try to cope with their anxiety. And in UK, the National Health Service just uh, released a report in April, I believe, in The Guardian. And in it, they stated a lot of really bad news about the populace of the UK. But the worst one was that last year, 30% of the people that they interviewed, which was thousands, contemplated suicide. We see stuff like school violence and, and school shootings in, in the US in particular. But that undercurrent is through society of, of this kind of, this anxiety that's in our children now. And it's almost like we've passed on this stress onto the next generation or else not given them the tools to cope with it. And it's one of the reasons I reached out to you because imagine we could teach our children some of the tools you talk about. It would be absolutely phenomenal. It would. And it's important. And fortunately, some people are starting to do it. It's one piece of the puzzle. You know, it's really one of the keys, I think, to healing our society is for everyone to learn breathing patterns. And once you learn them, they're free. You know, you just can do them anytime you want. But also we have to uh, really look at the way we're living now because if you really look at when the anxiety started growing at an exponential level, it was right about the same time that the digital technology took off. They're almost going hand in hand, these two explosions. Only it's not really being uh, addressed so much. For example, before social media they existed, statistics were much lower. This is the thing. I mean, children are seeing their parents ignoring them by checking their phone. or and, and I had this moment. I remember one time I was quite stressed and worked. This is going years back. And this was a turning point for me in, in, in everything, actually, in a way. It was, it was just a kind of a wake-up call. I got home from work. I was quite stressed. I was, do, I was doing emails while sitting there for the like 20 minutes I got in a day to play with my son at the time, who was like three. And he was just speaking and he turned to me and he goes, he held my hand and he goes, Daddy, being on your phone is not playing with me. And I just went, and I was so, I was so angry with myself. And I just went, that's it. Now, I, now do I slip? Yeah, of course I do. But I'm just so much more aware of, of that now in my life. And I, and that's gonna, that's gotta change. And then that inspired stuff like doing the show and, and getting people like you to share your message because it's so important in life. It is. And, and we don't really have any leadership. You know, that's part of the problem. And I think, I think that's going to change soon, fortunately, but the digital technology has has been um, growing exponentially, as as you know, and so governments haven't been able to keep up with it. They haven't been able to regulate it 
in terms of uh, health standards for society. France recently passed a law, I think maybe a little over a year ago, where they now forbid uh, management to contact their employees once they leave the office to go home. That's the only country I know of that's doing that. But that's, that's the kind of thing when I say regulate, what do I mean? We worked really hard to get people out of the coal mines, to get 12-year-olds out of the coal mines and to bring health standards to factories back in the you know Victorian era and just after that and to try to get workers down to an eight-hour day. So the, the manual laborer is fairly well protected now in terms of hours of work, working overtime, getting paid a lot for that and health standards, but now the, the white-collar worker, the office worker, seem, it seems to be fair game for companies to run them into the ground and make them work when they're at home. And, and then there's an, another element which is, is more disturbing, and that's our responsibility. I've talked to several psychotherapists. They come to my workshops to learn these breathing exercises. And they say, a lot of my clients don't want to stop this obsessive working, even if their employer pushes them, like, to go, go home, it's five o'clock, go home and get offline. They won't. It's an addiction. This sort of lifestyle of stress and anxiety is an addiction, and as heavy as uh, methamphetamines or something like that. And the worst part about it, it's a socially acceptable addiction. If you say you're working 70 hours a week, nobody thinks, God, you should go uh, get help, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's nuts, man. And, and like you say, they're like France, right? So France brought that in. And people's immediate reaction was, oh, France are soft, typical French, you know? And, and you're kind of going, well, it needs that leadership. Like, I was so happy to see recently that Microsoft brought in this rule where they were extending parental leave, but they would only work with suppliers who mirrored that parental leave. And that for me was a sign of leadership where you're using your capitalism for good. What I find is a technology makes us less efficient. So we're less focused and our focus is struggling. And B, we're getting less done in work. And then we're bringing our work home. And then we're teaching our children, this is how you live. But I wanted to ask you, Max, you mentioned earlier on, you, meant, you mentioned breathing, for example, or, or the mental side was, was one of the pillars. There's three pillars you identify for transformation, and it'd be great to share them. So you talk about mental, emotional, and physical. That's right. Mental, emotional, and physical. So for example, one of the, the pillars that I talk about is um, t uh, what used to be called time management, but I prefer to call it lifespan management. Because it's funny how we talk about our life and our, our lifespan and our time as two completely separate things. You know, we might say, um, what are you doing tonight? Oh, I don't know. I've got some time to kill. What do you want to do? You've got time to kill. Really, that's a, that's a horrible thing to say because your lifespan and your time are exactly the same thing. You know, we have a finite lifespan on our body and we say things like I have time to kill or get addicted to video games. You know, nobody's ever on their deathbed wishing they'd played more video games. They, instead, they go, oh my God, what did I do with all that time? I don't even remember, you know. It's shocking if you interview people who are still cogent when they're near death and what their regrets are. And their regrets almost always are what they did not do, what they could have done and did not do with their time and their lifespan. So to me, using business terms, creating cost-benefit analysis on our actions is critical. On top of that, 
to understand that if you want to make room in your day or night for things which bring you meaning and happiness, it's a barter system. You can't buy time. You can only trade for it. So that means you have to eliminate something out of your schedule to make time for something that has more meaning. Yeah, that makes sense. It's, it's like a prioritization. It's like, what, what do you want? You know, and l- like you say, people are so addicted to working that they can't get their head above it. And this is what I thought you talked about. So you talked about pillar one being the mind. And if we work on the mind, at least it can give us clarity to know what we want. That's right. We have to do self-inquiry. We have to understand what drives us. I'll give you an example. Marathon runners. Now, I know some marathon runners who are very actualized people. Uh, They can meditate. They have a very peaceful nervous system. But I have to say a great deal of marathon runners or long-distance runners I've met are running away from their own feelings. They cannot sit still. They have to move. And they'll say things like, running is my meditation. No, it's not, because meditation should quiet your nervous system so that you can be still. If you can't be still, you're running away from something. You're not running toward it. You're running away. So some people, not all, but some people really need to look at that. But it's not just marathons. It's your busy life. Are you leading a busy life so that it feels epic, so that it gives you an excuse that's socially acceptable not to deal with anything meaningful? I'm glad you mentioned sport because you talked about how we're addicted to working so hard. I know you have a background in sport. You played to a high level playing American football. So you know what it's like to compete. And it's funny because I was asking some people about yoga and I was saying, do you do yoga? And a couple of people gave up and I said, why? And they went, well, there was girls in the class who could put their legs behind their heads and they could, you know, touch their head off the wall and all kinds of contortions. And I said I was reading your book and I said that's exactly what you say is the problem because people focus on flexibility and you say actually flexibility is a side effect of doing yoga. Precisely. It's one of the side effects. Range of motion, I like to call it. It makes more sense from the student's point of view. Creating range of motion in your joints, increasing that rather than just flexibility. But also, if if you have a good practice... It should also create strength, create strength where you're weak, range of motion where you're tight, which then gives you better back health, neck health, you sleep better, etc. It is not a sport, should not be treated like a sport. And when it is, that's when a lot of injuries occur. Otherwise, you'll end up being the strongest, most flexible, angry person in the room. And (laughs) that's really a a backwards, um, a total misunderstanding of why we're doing it. You would never go to a chiropractor and say, okay, before you crack my back, who holds the record here? Because I'm here to win, you know? (laughs) That would show that you misunderstand why you're there. But just because someone doesn't have their hands on you in yoga, you're doing it yourself. It's no different. It should be a healing practice that's a breathing practice accompanied by postures. It's not a sport. And so striving to become a contortionist is completely a misunderstanding and it leads into this thing you call sports logic many of us lead our lives through the lenses of sports logic that's right sports logic basically means that every activity we do we're supposed to win at and relationships children what do i mean by that well for example look at the pride people take when they can brag about the achievements of their children it's still competition 
you know, my children's going to this university. Aren't I amazing because I made that happen, you know, in terms of the beauty or the handsomeness of their partner, still competition, or how many partners they have if they're single, still competition. Now I go to yoga, I'm going to win at this as well. And this is a sort of a militaristic point of view, and it doesn't work. So we try to use the same tool for every job, competition, force, dominance, and it works in parts of our life, but eventually we have a crisis and we find out it doesn't work for everything. Your wife or husband says, I'm going to leave you. And finally you realize, oh, I see shouting and force doesn't fix that. You start to realize, especially with the health crisis, that we need a holistic approach to our life and intensity and force is only one tool, not everything. I was thinking about this, right? And there's this trend in schools where now they're given medals to all children for participating. And I was thinking that also is the wrong message because then they don't appreciate the medal. I've seen this with children where they get the medal and then because they didn't earn it. And it's not because of the competition. It's about actually making them work for it. And I also think that's too far the other way. And I was kind of going, like, healthy competition is good if it's positioned right. What's your thoughts on that one? Well, I agree with you 100%, Aiden. I think regarding parenting, we're in an age of overcompensation. My parents' generation were quite strict and used corporal punishment and all that. And now I think we've really gone far the other direction. And this would explain why, in the United States anyway, among children, there's a 50% anxiety rate as well. When I was, let's say, in high school, I knew maybe two or three kids out of 800 that seemed to have any kind of anxiety. Uh, we call them nervous, you know. But basically, it was very uncommon. And now we're saying it's 50%. Well, the kids aren't working 12 hours a day. The kids aren't having to put their kids through college yet. The pressures that adults are experiencing are not the same pressures that children are experiencing. Now, one of the things that creates anxiety among children is not having boundaries. When they don't know what's right, what's wrong, what they should do, what they shouldn't do, they have an anxiety response. So the good intention of trying to protect your child can actually backfire massively if you don't allow them to make mistakes, to skin their knees to come in last in a contest. And from what I understand, when kids get a trophy or you know a star for something they didn't earn, they know they didn't earn it. They don't feel good about themselves at all. Mm-hmm. And what are we preparing them for? If they have no sense of striving, then once they get out of school and they get out of your protective bubble into the real world where you don't win a medal for coming in last, where people aren't nice to you at work if you don't do a good job, they are totally unprepared. And that could explain why the demographic with the most anxiety are the millennials, the ones who are in the workplace now and are not prepared for it emotionally. We actually did a show on this, like Generation Snowflake, and and that often suggests that they are to blame. But I do agree with you. It's how they were prepared, or they had helicopter parents or lawnmower parents who who smoothed the way in front of them. And like you're denying them the opportunity to grow and to learn when you do that. That's exactly right. I mean, if you look at any other kind of training classically throughout time, let me put it this way. I want a spouse. I want to marry someone and have children with someone who's never been tested in life. 
you would never say that. You would you would never put that on your dating website. I want someone someone who doesn't really know what they're capable of, has never had any adversity because they've been protected and they're sheltered, and so therefore they don't know how they will handle adversity. That's who I want as a partner. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you look at it that way, it's laughable. Of course, you want someone that you know what they're made of, you know what they're capable of, and they know because they have had to experience adversity. You can't protect people from adversity in life. Most of life is adversity, including, you know, health issues that are not predicted or accidental things like car accidents and so on, and wars, pestilence, hurricanes. And when we have times of peace and posterity, those are moments to relish, but we can't do that for our children. They have to be tested and they have to learn to withstand the cold and to work a little longer than they want to and so on. That's my opinion, and I know some people listening to this might disagree, but look at the results. 50% with anxiety disorder. Where did that come from? I'm on the same page as you, man, and I know people do disagree, but we have to disagree. Disagree is resistance. Disagree leads to change. So That's right. Moving on, right? So, by the way, to the listener, we're not going to dwell on just the issues here. We're going to move to some solutions. But the other one that, that you mentioned, Max, is you mentioned Mother Teresa visited visited New York, may she rest in peace, she visited New York and she found that the poor there couldn't really be helped by, by nourishment, by food nourishment, that it was, it was an nourishment of their soul or a dissatisfaction of their spiritually, they were spiritually impoverished. When I saw you, you wrote this, I went, actually, that's not just the poor, that's most of us in life, in fact, that's this yearning for meaning that we have. Could we touch on that for a moment? I mean, you, you're aware of how big a problem this is. Yes. I saw that in a documentary with Mother Teresa when she was still living, as she commented on her first trip to New York, to America, and came upon the first people that she thought she couldn't help because she was used to people needing food, water, medicine, and then they'd be fine. And then she finally found a population where that's not what they needed at all. It's really incredible, you know, our nervous system and the way our brain works has not been updated the way our, you know, our smartphone gets updated all the time. Our nervous system is pretty much the way it's been for several millennia, as far as they know. And there are certain things that we respond to. One of them is to be around people in person that we like, that we feel safe with, our tribe, our village, our family. And to spend time with them in person and look after each other's children on a daily basis and to eat meals together and prepare meals together and take care of people when they're uh, in trouble, whether it's physical crisis or emotional crisis. And for millennia, that pretty much was life right there, you know, the, plus the whatever kind of work that you did. That was it. You know, if you had enough food to eat and and clean water to drink and everybody was pretty healthy, that was the best you could expect from life. And then when education came along that maybe you could have that as well, learn to read, you know, you were in the 0.001% of the population. Now, all that's a given. You know, if you have a job, you probably have hot water, you have a microwave, you have, you know, all, all that stuff. You don't even think about that much less feel gratitude, immense gratitude for it. But what's missing now is the community, the clustering together, uh, interacting with each other. We don't really have that anymore. And uh, we're starting to pay for that. 
Yeah, and one of the things, the first steps you talk about, Max, is to be be self-centered. You call this out in the book, is self-centered doesn't mean being selfish because being self-centered means you need to start with yourself because that's the place you can control. That's exactly right. Every child knows this to be true. If you, if for example, let's say you're a little child and you're still trying to, uh, let me give it an age, let's say you're eight years old and you have a bit of a temper and your parents are trying to teach you to control your temper, but if if they aren't controlling their temper, if they're doing the same thing or worse, they can't teach you. You you have to start with yourself. You have to lead by example. It seems obvious uh, to, when you're looking at someone else, but it's the same for us. We have to uh, start with ourselves. And when I say self-centered, like you just said, I'm not talking about selfish or greedy at all. But, you know, like that old saying, physician, heal thyself. You, you have more of an impact on the world when you are healthy and when you are physically healthy and when you are mentally healthy than you do than when you are in crisis. When we are in crisis, we are not very available to do much of anything for anybody else. And Max, you talk about five courses of action that we can take to start the ball rolling. And I thought you do this in such a clear way. It'd be great if we could share them beginning with gratitude, like you said. Yeah, gratitude uh, is an extraordinary emotion and it has such an immediate effect on our nervous system. Cicero, the Roman senator and philosopher, said that gratitude is the parent of all other virtues. I really agree with this and believe I understand what he meant. Because when you're flooded with gratitude, you become humble immediately. You become more compassionate, more empathetic immediately. When you're feeling things like uh, self-righteousness, anger, self-pity, you've lost your gratitude. And so I, for example, lead my groups, my classes, my workshops, retreats, etc., through a gratitude visualization, which only takes three minutes. And it, at the end of that three minutes, we are in a different internal state than we were before. It's one of the quickest ways to realign yourself or recalibrate your emotional state from, you know, like I said, feeling sorry for yourself to feeling grateful or being angry to feeling grateful. It only takes a few minutes. Do you want to do it now, Max? It would be great to share that with our audience if it only takes three minutes, if you don't mind. I'd be happy to. Okay, let's do that. For your audience now, unless you're driving, close your eyes. Listen to the sound of my voice. I'm going to have you visualize something. In your mind's eye, in the heart, visualize that sitting right in front of you, only a few feet away, is the adult human being that you feel the most gratitude for. Choose the first person who comes to mind. Someone who taught you the meaning of love or helped raise your self-esteem at a critical time or believed in you when others wouldn't. Choose the first person who comes to mind and then visualize this person sitting, gazing at you with affection and respect. Look into their eyes. And as you do this, keep breathing. Look into the eyes of this beloved. And without words, radiate your gratitude toward this beloved. Without words, envelop him or her with your gratitude. 
as if it were your last opportunity. And this beloved is fully attuned to you, breathing about the same rate as you are blinking, and smiles and nods their head as only they can do, acknowledging your eternal connection. Notice how the feeling of gratitude feels a lot like forgiveness. And it can feel like love. Take a deep breath in. And out. And release this image. But keep the feeling. And when you're ready, open your eyes. Beautiful, man. I nearly dozed off there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't take long. No, man, not at all. I was telling you I do breathing with my son at nighttime before he goes to bed. It helps him sleep, but I also do gratitude with both the boys. Oh, nice. And it's it's actually one of the joys of my day is is just like they're five and eight, and the five-year-old will say the most – it's just so nice. The most basic things, you'll go, thank you for air. You know, I'm 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 grateful for air, <laughs> or I'm gra- I'm grateful for strawberries. Uh-huh. You know, and I'm kind of going beautiful because it's just it reminds you of what we take for granted from the mouths of babes. It, it's just so innocent and beautiful. That's right. Uh, uh, another father I know does that. He says, you know, he says half the time or more they they just say silly stuff, but then every once in a while they drop this notion that just makes you cry immediately. Yeah. That's really, really beautiful. He says it's his favorite part of the day. Well, yeah, it's a beautiful uh, thing. And that, that's the kind of exercise to teach children. Yeah, because you know what, Max? People may wonder sometimes, you know, this is called the Innovation Show. Why am I doing a show on this? Because I actually think this is a way more important skill to teach children than how to code or how to use technology because they're going to get that anyway, but they're not going to get this. They should be getting this in school. These are the skills that I certainly wish I had been a a sports player. Like I played professional sports. And one of the things I was going to say to you is, I I don't know about you, but one of my biggest regrets in in regards to that, I don't have many regrets, but one one of the ones that I, I just would have liked to have, and I do now in my life, is have stopped and smelled the roses because I never, ever stopped to appreciate what I had. I was so lucky and privileged and, you know, to play professional rugby and have those experiences, but I ever, never, ever stopped to enjoy it. And I was living in that world of sports ego. Before we move on to the second of the five causes, I wanted to, to talk about that. Our inclination to live in the future or dwell in the past and very, very seldomly stop and li- live in the present. And the present is the only place we can actually live because this relates to something you talk about that we kind of get the face we deserve at 50. And I don't mean deserve in a bad way. I just mean what's reflected on the inside comes through on our face as a mask as we grow older. And it's often because of this kind of whiplash of not living in the present and living in the past or the future. And when we do that, at a cellular level, our bodies don't know what's happening. Yeah, that's right. What I often say to my students is that 
if you ever wonder why you can't remember most of your life, it's because you weren't there. If I'm sitting in a train, but I'm remembering last year, I'm replaying a memory loop, I cease to take any input at that in the present moment. So I remember nothing about it. And I think we spend so much time, like you said, in the past or the future that we record nothing of the present. It's a huge problem. And I'm sure it's a massive, unbeknownst to us, it's a huge cause of anxiety. But it leads to the second thing, because dwelling on the past often means forgiving those who have hurt us in some way or asking forgiveness if we have hurt others. And this is the second of the five causes. Well, it doesn't matter how many tattoos you get or how much wheatgrass juice you drink or how much yoga you practice, if you are angry, if you're carrying anger in your heart, you will not have a happy life. To me, forgiveness is a skill, an art that has to be learned in this life because there will be people that do things that will scar you and there will be things that we do, whether it's accidentally or purposefully, through misunderstanding that scar other people. A lot of us have a lot of work to do in forgiving ourselves, more so even than others. How do we start, Max? What's some of the ideas you talk about that we can get the ball rolling on forgiveness? Well, the first thing I say is we have to identify what it is because forgiveness is somewhat of a vague term in society. Three different people will give you three different answers. So I try to make it more exact and I cross-reference between a lot of dictionaries, a lot of definitions. And essentially what forgiveness means is that you let go of your anger. It doesn't mean that for example, let's say it's a friend that betrayed you. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be friends again because that person may have proved to be an unreliable friend. But if you can release the anger so you're not carrying it anymore, it changes your behavior. Just like we all know that if someone makes us really angry at work then we go home, we're more likely to get in an argument with someone at home. In other words, we're carrying that anger from point A into point B and then unloading it on someone who doesn't deserve it at all. So if we don't learn to forgive, we become an angry person in general. If you ever have known an angry old man or woman down the street, that's what we're going to be if we don't learn how to forgive. So the first thing is to uh, identify exactly what it is and then to understand what the cost to our life is if we don't do it. And the cost is extraordinarily high and Many of us, many people listening to this, grew up with a parent who was an angry person and did not know how to handle their anger. And we know what it's like to live in a household like that. And it's extraordinarily damaging to children, but also to the spouse or significant other and anyone else that comes into contact with them. So our cost to not forgiving someone else, let's say from our own past, will spill over into our present relationships and damage them. So we end up passing along our anger like an heirloom through our family. That's a very powerful image. And then also it manifests on the mask that we talked about earlier on. But the third cause you talk about is practicing kindness and honesty. And I often think about this one in business, for example, because business is seen very much in the same light as the sports ego. And you talked about using the same tool as the, you know, the hammer going through life, trying to fix everything with a hammer and the hammer being competition. We see the practice of kindness and honesty as a soft thing. And I know business is talking more and more about encouraging soft skills, but they're also often seen in a negative light, but they're so important. You know, if you talk to 
people who were successful in business for decades will tell you that it's all about the relationships. That's what you remember, for better or for worse. To be honest and to be kind are, it's really a relationship between those two ethics. I think that we can't really practice one without the other because you can be honest to the point of brutality and you can be kind to the point of uh, avoid, just avoiding conflict so you end up lying. Those two extremes obviously are uh, catastrophic. But when they stay in relationship, for example, let's say you want to deliver a critique to someone, but because your kindness dictates that you shouldn't do it today because they just found out someone they love passes away, so you delay it a few days. That's not lying. That's just being kind and then delivering the critique at the right moment. That's an example of the relationship between kindness and honesty. Beautiful. And that leads nicely then to humility as well, which is really related closely to those skills. Yes, humility is, uh, is something really to cultivate. And unfortunately, a lot of people you know, with the sports logic mindset think, well, humility is just weak. No, humility is not the opposite of strength. It's the opposite of arrogance. You can be very humble and uh, be the best person on a rugby team, for example, can be humble and still be the most feared person in rugby. I'm sure you ex experienced that. And, uh, you know, you look at world leaders like Gandhi or Nelson Mandela, they were quite humble people. And that causes people to listen. When you're strong and humble, it makes for the best leader. And uh, there's so much certainty now in the political environment. It really uh, is something that I'm sad about because people express their political views with absolute 100% certainty. And I think we always have to be prepared for the fact that we still have more to learn and we might be wrong. And so when dealing with people who have an opposing viewpoint, whether it's political or at the kitchen table, to remember our humility and that we could be wrong and to really be good listeners. Funny you say that. I saw this today, a headline. It was about a big major Fortune 500 company making a, an about turn on a decision they made. And I thought that was a very good thing. I was like, well, fair play to them for deciding, actually, I know we did a lot of PR that we're going to do this, but we're not because it's, it's not right for where the business is. But the reporting media on it was laughing at them and kind of going, ha ha, you made the wrong decision. And I was going to go, that's exactly the wrong way to approach that. No wonder people are slow to admit that they've made a mistake. But also the other thing is I find one of the beautiful things this show gives me is access to great knowledge, great authors like yourself and great teachers like yourself. And through doing that, I constantly challenge myself. I don't have any really solid beliefs. What I like to do is try and get into as many shoes as possible around the issue or challenge or possible solution and then see it from all those ways. And it's, it's a beautiful way to see the world, I think, that to do that, but it takes time. But which leads me to the next one, which is the final one of the five causes of action, which is the idea of having ethics. And that counts for both life and business. That's right. Ethics basically means that we decide who we are, what we stand for, what we won't stand for in the world. And it's a funny subject, you know, because a lot of people, they don't seem very interested in it. You know, people don't read book after book on ethics, for example, most people, or discuss it at length. At least they don't think they do. But whenever you're complaining, when I say you, I mean whenever we are complaining about any relationship, business, social, personal, romantic, 
when you're complaining about a relationship, you're complaining about ethics. You're, you're basically by default saying that my expectation is here for this behavior and this person is not meeting the bar, whether it's justice or kindness or fidelity or whatever it is. We all have an idea of what ethics are when we're looking at other people's behavior. But to try to lead an ethical life means that we monitor our own ethics, not just the ethics of other people. And that's hard. And one of the keys to doing it is we have to project uh, ourselves in situations we haven't been in before, use our imagination to try to determine, well, what will I do if I am ever in that situation? And that way we can respond pretty quickly if something happens. You know, For example, in the yoga world, where I spend a lot of my time, there are a lot of people who would say they're pacifists, but they really haven't thought it through. In other words, what I would ask is, do you mean under all circumstances? And people who haven't thought this really through, they say, yes, I'm a pacifist. But then I could quickly offer them a couple of circumstances where they would change their mind. I could say, so if you're walking down the street and you're seeing a, a four-year-old being beaten with the plank and there's no one else around, you wouldn't try to physically intervene. And they go, well, no, in that case I would. Okay, so then your pacifism is conditional. It's not unconditional. And I'm not criticizing that. What, I, what I'm suggesting is that that's healthy to put yourself into imaginary positions to challenge your own ethics and for us to, in a healthy way, but not a mocking way, uh, at the dinner table or at the bar or at the uh, dinner party, to say, let's discuss this. What would you do if this? Make it into a game. What would you do in this situation? And it's quite, it's great conversation. And intellectually, it's very stimulating to realize, oh, God, I hadn't thought of that. You're right. I would, I would do that differently in that situation. You know, people say, absolutely, I don't believe in stealing. But if suddenly they're in a war situation, their children are starving, and there's, an, there's a house over there that's not locked, they're going to break a window and go in and get food for their children. So our ethics are somewhat conditional, depending on the circumstances. And it's really healthy for us to think these things through and make it an exercise in life and not to be afraid to upgrade them from, to, from time to time, like we do with our operating system. Say, I just had an amazing experience and now I feel differently about this subject. I love that analogy of the operating system. That's brilliant. And, and actually, what you said there about understanding ethics and understanding situations and having empathy towards different situations. We had a brilliant guest on a few weeks ago, Dexter Diaz, and his book is called 10 Types of Human. And it talks about the 10 humans we become. He's a human rights lawyer, and he talks about basically how we can do such horrible things in the world. And when you read them, you kind of go, oh my God, I can see this now. It's, it's actually a book about exactly what you're talking about. But before I ask you, I wanted to ask you about your workshops and, and your work on breathing and your lectures, etc. Before I do, one of the fears, and, and I don't have this one, so it's one of the reasons I'm asking you, because I want to ask on behalf of the people who do, is the fear of death. It seems to be a rampant one, and like, like people are racing through life almost to death and not enjoying life. It's a, it's a real di dilemma. It's a real weird one in life. But death is a strange one, and you give this amazing quote, when the angel of death approaches, he is terrible. When he reaches you, he is bliss. I thought that would be a great way to set us up to talk about this. <laughs> yes, I write more about the angel of death 
which of course I mean not exactly in a literal way, but I say that the angel of death reminds you that he owns everything that you have, that everything that you think you own is borrowed from the angel of death, including your body. And then he'll start taking things away from you as you get older. You know, for example, he might take take your hair, so you lose your hair on your head, or then he might he might start losing your hearing and your vision and your ability to walk, and you might lose your spouse, you might have a divorce, and you start losing things, and eventually all of it's swept away, except that which you have in your heart, the love that you have for others and that others have for you and the experiences of wisdom that you have and the transcendent experiences that you've had are yours to keep and no one can take away, not even the angel of death. Beautiful. Before we finish, so we've gone through a hell of a lot today. It'd be great to talk about your work because your work, the book is great. It talks, it gives us loads of exercises. It's one of two books and also you have YouTube videos and you have your own website as well. It'd be great to share a little bit about your solutions for all this through your breath work, your breath workshops, etc. Thank you. Uh, well, for those of you in the Ireland, UK area, I'll be in London on uh, November 16th through 18th at Tri Yoga in, uh, in London. Tri Yoga is the name of the, the biggest yoga studio there in London. And I'm doing some workshops, including one for men. It's called The Calibrated Man. And then all the other workshops are for everybody, where we do a lot of this breath work and I do some lectures and so on. They usually sell out, so be sure to register in advance. My website is maxstrom.com. And I have a YouTube channel as well. Just look at my name there and you'll find quite a few talks including the one that you referenced called Breathe to Heal, which is a TED Talk I did on the subject of uh, breathing as a way of uh, healing yourself on an emotional level. Brilliant, Max. And I'll link to all those those uh, links as well. Last question for you is, what would you like to see come out of the world out of all this work that you're doing? I would like two things to come out of it. One is that people learn that they can regulate their internal state through breathing exercises and also that we don't accept everything new as better, that there are some things from the past ways of living that we should keep forever. And there's a lot of things from the past we, should, we need to get rid of as soon as possible. And same with things that are coming along new, like social media seems to be one of the culprits when it's overused that really destroys people. It's like the white sugar of our time. So we need to create a, a kind of a filtering in terms of, vetting new technology and making sure that it's serving us and we're not serving it. Fantastic. Author of A Life Worth Breathing, Max Strom. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Aiden. Anytime.